This is Penned In, the podcast for all things bookish. My name is Anna Kate Meadler, and I'm here to help you find your next read. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 34 of Penned In. This week, I interviewed YA fiction author Emma G. Rose about writing, life, and more. What is your process for writing contemporary fantasy books? That is an interesting question because I don't feel like I'm one of those authors who has a really solid process in the sense of something documented. Most of the time what happens is I have an idea and it sort of lives in the back of my brain for a while until it pokes me hard enough that I finally write something down. And then I write maybe the first chapter or a scene, something that I I have a grip on. And I start building out from that scene. And sometimes it's not the first chapter. Sometimes it's further in, or it ends up getting moved around, but I start with kind of what I know and then start building around that. It usually takes me a really long time to write a first draft because I don't plan things. And so I'm planning as I go and I'm like figuring out what my story is about as I write it, which means having to go back. And then once I figured out what the story is about, plant the seeds to make sure that it's coherent throughout the whole thing. Why did you choose to write in the fantasy genre? I've always loved fantasy. I've always read fantasy. I'm a huge Terry Pratchett fan. I really like Neil Gaiman and V.E. Schwab. And that just that way of telling a story means a lot to me because I feel like you can deal with really hard things, tough situations, scary and dangerous things that we all have to deal with. And you can do it in a way that doesn't feel threatening because it's fantasy, because it's magic, because It gives you enough emotional distance to really tackle something that otherwise would be difficult to read and challenging to allow yourself to fully feel. But it's a story and there's just enough of that space. Now, have you always liked fantasy or has your reading taste changed since you were a kid? I read everything pretty much. I love all books, more or less. And I think that I started out reading fantasy from a very young age. And I read a lot of sci-fi as well, but sometimes I don't feel qualified to write sci-fi because I feel like I need to know more science than I actually do. So when I do write sci-fi, it's soft sci-fi where like it might be the future, but the technology or the, the actual like scientific parts of it aren't quite as important to the story as just part of the setting. Are there any real life aspects that inspire your books? Oh my goodness. Yes. All of my books are inspired by real life, even though they're fantasy. And most of them are set in real life, even though they're fantasy. So anyone who grew up in the same area of central Maine that I did will recognize not only the feel of the books, but also actual places named in them. I use settings a lot because it gives you a a solid sense of place. But then in terms of 
kind of the people and the ideas behind the stories, those are often drawn from real life too, although often people are smashed together or situations are altered to fit the story, you know, names may be changed to protect the innocent kind of situation. But really my first novel, I started writing because I lost my cousin to suicide. And so my way of dealing with that situation, my way of of handling that feeling was to write a story about it. And the story that I wrote is not specifically about suicide, but it is about what happens after you die and where he might've gone next, you know, what that experience is like. So it was very much inspired by real life with a lot of creative license. Cause of course I have no idea what happens next. And anyone who says they do probably maybe only has a snippet of it at best. So I had to create a lot. And then in later books, like Assembling Ella, I was still dealing with that grief, but in the long term. So Ella's story of coming to terms with her brother's death many, many years previously mirrored my own experience of it being 13 years after my cousin had died and still feeling those feelings and feeling like, why do I still feel like this? Shouldn't I be you know, over it or better by now? And writing those books, not only are they pulled from real life, but they also help me deal with real life. So they were really cathartic in that I could get those emotions on the page and again, create that emotional distance for myself where I turned the things that were happening to me, the the bad things, the scary things into stories. And they felt much more manageable when they were stories. Wow. First off, I'm so sorry for your loss. That I, I know I haven't, luckily I haven't gone through it personally, but I do know from friends that it is hard. Um, yeah. Was that, thank you. Was that when you first really knew that you wanted to be a writer? So I've wanted to be a writer ever since I realized that books were written by people and not by magic. I mean, they're still a little bit magic, right? But they're written by people. And I, When I go and speak at schools, I actually talk about the specific moment that I realized I wanted to be a writer. In that moment, I was sitting on the top bunk of my bunk beds and I had a book in one hand and I had a notebook in the other. And the book was a Redwall book by Brian Jakes, Jacques, not sure how his last name is pronounced, but I loved the Redwall books. And they were poems in those books. I was the kind of nerd who would copy the poem over into my notebook so that I had like a notebook of my favorite poems and quotes. And at some point during that process, while writing out one of his poems, I thought, wait a minute, I can do this. I could write something. It doesn't have to be a copy of something someone else has done. And I did. I still have that notebook. And if you look after that poem, there is a poem that's signed by me at like 11 years old. It's terrible, but it was a poem and I wrote it. And I was really proud of the fact that I had done that. And it was the moment that I realized that writing was a thing that I could do and a thing that I wanted to do. But it took me almost 10 years to then figure out what was it that I really had to say. And that was my cousin's death was that kind of catalyst for realizing this is what I want to write about. Not just stories to write stories, but stories to help people deal with terrible things. You mentioned that you've talked at a couple of schools. What was that experience like talking to kids who also may one day become authors themselves? I love talking at schools. It is my favorite thing. It's even better than writing, honestly. 
The thing about going into schools is that I pretty much go to high schools and colleges. I have gone to one middle school, which was new for me, but mostly high schools and colleges. And it's funny because in high schools, especially, there's always at least one kid who you can tell. They might not say anything. They might not even be brave enough to ask a question out loud in front of the group, but you can tell by the way they're paying attention that they want to be a writer, that they have a story and that they want to know everything you have to give them. And I'm there for that one kid. So I am there to tell that kid what they need to hear, which is that you absolutely can do this. You absolutely can. And all you have to do is keep writing and keep learning. That's it. Those are the only criteria for being an author. So getting to do that and to sort of talk to myself as a child and say, you can do this thing that you desperately want to do is the most fulfilling part of this whole journey for me. Obviously the kids have learned something from you. Have you learned anything from talking to them? I learned a lot from talking to the kids and on a couple of different levels. So my books are mostly YA. So talking to kids is really useful because I hear how they talk to each other. I hear how they interact with their teachers, the sort of banter that goes on before I start talking. All of that's really valuable as like a research. But I've also learned from them that life is a lot harder for young people than most adults are willing to admit. You know, you have these adults who always want to say, oh, you're so young. What do you know about stress? What do you know about grief? What do you know about being tired? And these kids are going through it. They're dealing with real things, even in middle school. I had one of the girls at the middle school I went to came up to me and asked me, how long did it take you to feel better after your cousin died? Because I lost my friend and my mom in a six month time period. What do I do? And like, this is a middle school kid. So they've taught me that they're going through it, but they're also incredibly resilient. And more than anyone else before them, I think this group of kids coming up, these high school students, these middle school students are committed to figuring out mental health, to figuring out how to support each other and like make a better world. And that is so cool to watch. How have you balanced your mental health? Like, obviously, we've been through a global pandemic. How have you managed mental health through that? Also running, I believe you also run a publishing house and a podcast and you write books. How how do you do all that? Right. I have publishing house, the podcast. I've written three books. The fourth one's in progress. And I also run a freelance writing business. So I actually sort of run two and a half businesses. How I do that is with a lot of help and willingness to ask for help. When we talk about being self-published or independently published, it's sort of a misnomer because no one does this alone. And if you're trying to do it alone, it's way harder. So I have to constantly remind myself it's okay to ask for help. There are people who really want to help and there are people you can pay to help you. So there are you know varying levels of where you can get help. The other thing is that It sounds like a long list of things to do, but I love all of these things. I love writing. I love talking to kids. I love being on podcasts and interviewing authors on podcasts. I really enjoy all of that stuff. And if I get to do all of it and maybe make money doing it, that's the dream, right? That's what everyone wants. So I just keep reminding myself, like, this is the dream. This is, this is what you're here for. And yeah, there's burnout sometimes, you know, there's overworking because you say yes to too many things, but ultimately it's worth it. And I just have to remember to step back sometimes and 
not try to do literally everything. <laughs> what is the inspiration behind the name Imperative Press Books? That's a great question. I don't think anyone's asked me that yet. So the name Imperative Press, I know there's supposed to be like this amazing backstory to how you came up with a name, like you're supposed to come in like a stroke of genius or like, you know, you're standing on a street corner and you see like a dove go by and then there's a French fry. And so you're like dove and fry, but that didn't happen. What happened was I was looking for a name that I could feel confident about, but that also no one else had already taken. And so when I started brainstorming names, a lot of them were either really close to something someone else was already doing or just didn't resonate with me. So I landed on Imperative Press because I actually thought of the tagline first, which is must read books. And imperative, the imperative case is the thing you must do, right? So imperative press is the books you must read, the books you absolutely need. And so I landed on that. And then from there, the exclamation point was the obvious logo for this. So that's that you get the exclamation point in a circle is my logo, but it wasn't, sadly, there's no like beautiful backstory about the inspirational moment. It was just something I really liked that once I found it was the right answer. I still think that's cool though. <laughs> Cause I wouldn't, I would not have made that connection when putting those two together along the same vein. How do you come up with the titles for your books? With great difficulty and pain. <laughs> Coming up with the titles of books is like the worst part of the process for me. Nothing's Ever Lost, which was my first novel. I mean, it took 10 years from the time I started writing it to the time I published it. And probably the last two of those years was at least in the background trying to figure out what I was going to title this book. That book title actually ended up coming from a song by Amanda Palmer, who sings this song, Nothing's Ever Lost Forever. It's just caught inside the cushions of your couch. And when you find it, you'll have such a nice surprise. And I thought it was perfect for this story about how things are lost, but not really. And then for other books, it's really just been a process of sort of listening to the characters as they're talking and figuring out what do they say or how do I summarize this in a way that really makes sense for the story. So the hardest one was probably assembling Ella because that really was a creation where I couldn't find anything in the story that I liked to be the title. But Ella is an assembly artist, which is an artist who makes things by sticking them together essentially and she's also trying to like figure out who she is so I thought assembling Ella was the right choice there but ultimately I think I could retitle most of my books to something different and it wouldn't break my heart because like most of them aren't the perfect title they're just the best title I could come up with at the time <laughs> you're on an indie book podcast uh how did you how'd you meet your co-host I met my co-host in a writing group that we were in together. And it was actually kind of funny because we weren't initially planning to be co-hosts. When the pandemic started, I, like everyone else, went, ah, what do I do now? And one of the things I really missed very quickly was the opportunity to sit with my writer friends and talk about our books and talk about our writing process. And so I had this wild idea I was going to start a podcast. I knew nothing about podcasting. I didn't even listen to podcasts at the time. Like I was just like, no, this is the thing I have to do because I used to be a journalist and I know that if you have some sort of press credential, people will talk to you. 
And a podcast is just your own private press credential. So I knew that Shelly had done a podcast in the past. I had remembered her kind of mentioning it. So I emailed her and I said, hey, Shelly, can you give me some pointers? And she said, I can give you some pointers. And also I would love to do a podcast again. So if you need a co-host, I'm open for it. No pressure. And I was like, yes, please. And so we started this podcast together and it's been going for a year and a few months now. What would you say is like the biggest impact that the pandemic has had on you? Is it that podcast? I think the podcast was definitely a thing that came out of the pandemic. I think that somewhere along the last couple of years, I have just hit a point where I don't care what anyone thinks. And I can, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. Like there's no question you could ask me today that I wouldn't answer completely honestly, even if I start crying while answering it. I just like, I've completely given up on the idea that I'm supposed to be a specific way or impress people in a specific way. And I think that that came from sort of watching the world collapse a little and going, wait a minute, none of this stuff I was worried about matters at all in this situation. So why am I holding on to it? So how do you, how do you take that idea into your marketing for the book and then also yourself as an author? That's a great question too. I think that In terms of the marketing, it's, I'm trying to be really real to who I am. And I know like we met on TikTok, right? And on TikTok, they're like, if you do this thing and you use this sound and you do this dance and everyone will follow you. And I'm like, okay, great. And lots of followers is awesome, but do I actually care, right? Or do I want to find the couple of people who have the same sort of weird desire to look behind the curtain of the world and see what's actually going on and talk about things that are hard and scary. Those are the people I want, not the people who are doing the latest TikTok trend. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not my thing. So I think in the marketing sense, is it a great marketing strategy? In the short term, absolutely not. In the long term, I think it will build me a group of people who are really excited about what I'm doing and I can be excited about what they're doing and we can all be just happy, wonderful reader book people who are changing the world a little bit at a time. In my personal life and the actual process of my writing, this idea that I don't have to impress anyone is actually really liberating in writing because I don't second guess like, oh, am I allowed to do this? If it's what the story calls for, I will absolutely do it. I will change POV. I will change tenses. In Assembling Ella, I did this kind of weird thing where part of the stories take place in her dreams. And anytime we're in a dream, it's happening in present tense. But the rest of the story is in your typical, like she went to the store, she bought a drink, right? And that's weird and jarring the first time you read it. But once you get into it, it feels really good. And it gives you this really obvious signal that, hey, we're in a dream now that works really well for the story. But it's 100% the kind of thing that a teacher would tell you, oh, no, you can't do that. If there's anything I've learned, if a teacher tells you you can't do it, they're they're probably not entirely correct about it. (laughs) There are a lot of things, I think, that are taught in English classes. With all love and respect to the English teachers out there, they do a very hard job. There are things that are taught in English classes that are super relevant for writing essays for things like writing your college entrance exams, like stuff like that, 100%. Don't start a sentence with but, you know, be careful with your contractions, all that stuff. 
But when you're writing fiction, a lot of those ideas have to go out the window because you have to write in an, an authentic way that sounds like the way people talk, that gets the story into that person's brain in the best way it can fit. And things like really strict grammar rules or POV rules or any of that stuff isn't necessarily the best way to do that in fiction. So it's a matter of using the right tools in the right situation. Are there any mindsets that you've kind of had to change from going from academic writing to more creative writing? Every day I have to switch, right? So because I have a freelance writing business where I write content for companies, I have a sort of professional tone that I can use for their company blog posts for the web copy that I write for them. And then I have my author voice. And so I have to learn to switch that on and off. And when you're writing professionally, you have to you know, support your statements. You have to have data and research that says like, yes, this thing that I'm saying is true actually is, right? It's a lot like writing a, an essay in school. When I'm writing fiction, I have to remember that I don't have to be that constrained and I am allowed to just like make a wild claim and then find a reason to make it real. And that mindset shift is actually really useful, I think, because it allows me to, to keep creativity and flexibility in a way that I think a lot of real grownups don't hold on to. And I, I've had conversations with people who say, oh, isn't it sad how you're not as creative as you were, were when you were a kid? And I'm like, hmm. Speak for yourself, friend. <laughs> what advice would you give to aspiring authors? Write the thing is the very first piece of advice. Like you can't be an author just by reading books or just by listening to author podcasts or just by scrolling TikTok and following all the book talks. You can't be an author that way. The only way you will ever do this is to first write the best story you know how and then only once you've got that first draft, at least, then you can start thinking about things like, how do I publish? How do I market? How do I do all these other things? It's super easy to get completely overwhelmed because we live in an age of endless resources available on the internet at any moment. And you can completely derail yourself. You wrote half a chapter of a book. And the next thing you know, you're Googling like, how do I become a New York Times bestseller? Or what's the best marketing strategy for reels on Instagram? And like, that's not relevant right now because you haven't written the book yet. Well, we are coming up to the end of time. But first off, I just want to thank you. I realize we're not in person, but thank you through the screen for doing this with me. I do really appreciate it. Oh yeah, I love it. It's so fun. And I'm glad I found you. I'm really excited by your podcast and the fact that you're like, what did you, you're like 18 and you're already just running a podcast. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I have a tendency. I like to do a lot of things at once. Um, my friends call me crazy for it. Want to learn more? You can find Emma G. Rose's website linked in the description below. Her most recent book, On the Bank of Oblivion, is out now. Check out the link in the description to buy your copy today. And that's all for this week. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in and make sure to listen in next time on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify.